30 years since football began. Well, no, it didn't begin. Uh, Stuart Quigley, when I saw that The Athletic were doing a 30 years of great Premier League moments, I thought, oh, are they going to do the same thing for the Football League next year and do 135 moments? No, they jolly well aren't. I mean, it would be... I think this is the thing about trying to um, condense English football. Football is so... English football specifically is, is beautiful in the sense that uh, the 30-year mark is really easy to condense, to look back, and a nice pivot point to uh, turn your head towards both where we got here and where we're going. Whereas if you went back further and tried to do the entire Football League, it gets gloriously complicated with so many teams that are significant to the past that don't even exist anymore. And when you talk about like the, the Royal Engineers and all those sort of teams from way, way, way back, then you know um, that's why uh, the Premier League is a neater bow to tie shall we say well Paul Brown wrote an excellent book about the pre-war years. I think it was of Newcastle, though he might have done it overall. But football can be divided into eras. We're now in the greed is good era. I would call this Stuart Quigley, author of the Cornerstone Collection, sculpting the Premier League's past, present and future, uh, which is out in hardback. Um, I'd call this the postmodern era. And I'll use, I'll, I'll try and find someone mentioned in your book as an example. Bukayo Saka is a good example. Postmodern football. He's not a washbag carrier. He's not interested in the glitz or the glory. He, he is a footballer. That's his job. And uh, he uses that to make political points as and when. Um, but he's grown up in the era of the Premier League. The Premier League started before he was born. He is postmodern football. This is a personal sort of thing that I carried with me for quite a while, really rather up until fairly recently. And now I'm having to second guess it, whereby as I've grown up and as I've watched the game, I thought the eras got shorter and shorter right up until the point where I'm not even in sh- I'm not even entirely sure if they could exist anymore because uh, the first ten years of the Premier League becomes an amalgamation of uh, sort of late eighties football being sort of washed over by money and and the football itself doesn't change that much over the course of those ten years and then. Wenger kickstarts a particular period of time. You get to 2005 and Abramovich changes it again in an even quicker period of time. And everything got faster and faster to the point where teams that were synonymous with a decade of being dominant, I didn't think you could get that. And now, maybe with Manchester City, that might change. But at the same time, you have to ask yourself how they get to that point. Yes, well... Alex Ferguson departing in 2013 and the fact that for the last nine years, Manchester United, the famous 20 title winning Manchester United, have not won the title. We are in the post-Ferg era. I did this um, piece about 80 years of Ferguson. You're right, anniversaries are zeros and fives. Um, And yet I realised about nine years ago, I actually supported Ferguson. I didn't support Manchester United. I supported what the manager was doing. Uh, And what you've done here is, although you've referenced managers, you've put together a roster of 45 players, one from each club in the Premier League uh, since 1992. I wrote a book about modern football, and my final chapter was, can you pick 11 players from the pre-Bosman era to go in an 11? I put Cruyff at left back. It was that tough. So I think the easiest thing to do uh, to nail down what is in the cornerstone collection, I could have chosen a better metaphor, uh, is to read out each position. And as we go, um, you can pick one or who, who beyond any of the others slots in uh, and why you've made your choice, because they are really 
really good choices. I must just pick you up on a couple of absentees. Okay. Which, um, which I'm sure um, you've made. I'm not going to pick the obvious ones that aren't there, but there's no James Milner, no Gareth Barry, no, no Raphael, no Adebayor and no Klinsman. That's testament to how difficult this task must have been more than anything else. Yeah, to flip that around, I consider it to be quite an engaging exercise and I don't think there is one definitive... 45 you could pick there are certain teams where the choice gets very narrow but after you get to about the 20 mark that becomes where do you play with what stories or what themes do you pick at James Milner would have been an incredible pick to have but in terms of the clubs that he was representing a lot of those stories had been told by the players elsewhere and um, I love James Milner to bits and I think he's a like an unbelievable player and an unbelievable character but it's just in terms of um, stories and players that were not necessarily representative definitively but just rather than going over different rather than going over the same ground rather trying to use the connective tissue between the 45 that I've chosen and indeed the 20 that are kind of more personal choices rather than being boxed into a corner I'd, I'd like to think I've covered as much as possible there within that it is quite an extraordinary book. It isn't... Um, Joe Lovejoy wrote a book 10 years ago, which was 20 years of the Premier League. And it was very much a kind of, this is a journalist who has been at all the main games and has chronicled what's gone on. It's not a glossy kind of 30 years of Sky Sports and you bet there'll be a book. And it'll be called the Premier League Hall of Fame and it'll have Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher in it and Michael Richards will obviously pop up for obvious reasons. Uh, not to dig Micah Richards. But what the great thing about this book is, is it's a history of football in 45 players. It's sculpting the Premier League's past, present and future. It's not really about the players. You can just substitute the players in. But just look at the goalkeepers to start with. Aurelio Gomez, Nigel Martin, the first million pound goalkeeper, the solid longevity um, holder, Jussi Jaskalainen, Alisson Becker and Edwin van der Sar. The case can be made for all five of those, but they each demonstrate a different era from Martin to Jessica Leinen to Van der Sar to Gomez to Alisson. So even the evolution of the goalkeeper can be tracked. I think it's very clever what you've done here. I think it's well within those stories you think about. I'm going to sort of delve into however many goalkeepers you wanted to choose. And I wanted to not quite necessarily pick it in the same way you would a World Cup squad, but there were so many more outfield players to go with that my goalkeeping numbers are always going to be quite low. Well, yeah, they, that's and, always because there are 18 strikers, yeah. for example, here, yeah. <laughs> and so within that, it's the, what do you say about, what do these players say about the position and what do their stories um, entail? And, and Gomez, just as an example, is his story is, is one of redemption. His story is one of he came over here with a certain reputation it got shattered and eventually he goes off to Vicarage Road after it, all else looks lost, becomes a cult hero. And then there's a moment where he, he could get his swan song, he could get his moment in the sun and everything could be fine and rose in the end. And what if it gets smashed 5-0 or 6-0 or whatever it was in the FA Cup I turned off at 3-0. Yeah, so it's that, it's that beautiful bittersweetness of football in the sense that you don't ever really, apart from one or two, get the closing chapter that you should get. And within his story, his story was highs and lows. And that's kind of what I wanted to, to look at 
rather than just necessarily what they did on the pitch. That like Jaskolainen is a, is a true test of this idea that the foreign player that comes in that has no connection to a team can even belong to a team. And, and he was the epitome of consistency, which is unbelievable for that position. And the idea that um, he was just a, a calm head in the storm of what Allardyce was cooking ahead of him. Yeah, and I completely forgot he played for Allardyce at West Ham. And Jaskolainen... Mm-hmm. It's odd how now we're seeing kind of the 90s football revolution. I was too young for it. I was eight when I got into football at Euro 96. I think you're a tiny bit older. I think it's about the same, actually. Good. I was uh, in 1996. I would have been 10. Right. But I got into football slightly late myself. So Euro 96 is it's the first I supported football at that point, but only as a sort of passive, that's what everyone else sort of did. I grew up in a household, um, you can maybe, key listeners will know that my accent, um, uh, Birmingham City. I knew it. Other sort of, I yeah. knew it was Birmingham. Yeah, and I don't support Birmingham City. Um, and I, I, to, to all intents and purposes, I have a really keen affinity with this idea that when you're young, you should be able to go and watch and go and see and have a connection with your local side because it's it's your people, quote unquote. And But my father really well, hilariously, sort of gave up on football in the late 80s thinking it was too expensive then mm. and so I grew up without it and the only sides that were on TV at the time uh, you maybe get the obviously you get the FA Cup final but you get the occasional game I remember watching uh, Liverpool play Bromby and my father had told me all this about how what the Liverpool sides were that he grew up with and what he knew throughout the years and I couldn't understand that this Bromby who I'd never heard of were beating Liverpool and, and, and that's been the love story that I've had that's been the connection because I as a child just couldn't handle it and then I just thought if the connection I feel is that deep I'll you know I'll go on or I'll carry that on but in terms of trying to um, go back to uh, what you were saying about oh okay, I've, I've gone off on a complete tangent here Good. and I've completely got the point Trying to go back to just keeping it in terms of what the goalkeepers are and and Jeskalainen and, and, and everyone in terms of what football has gone as it's moved on. In terms of like growing up in the 90s, there was a blueprint there that I didn't realise as it was being set in real time. And, and I think that might be part of it. It's almost nostalgic in a way to go back and look at some of these characters in terms of this is what I grew up with and how it's changed and moved on. And it's, I don't consider it to be... And I don't think the book itself is confined to the Premier League as such as the... There are things that I talked about before the Premier League happened. There are things that I've mentioned that exist within the confines of the 92 and indeed the entire football pyramid. But there was something comforting about going back and looking at players that I remember growing up and what they meant. And not necessarily the ones that everyone would know headline names, but just the ones that you go, oh yeah, they, they take me back to my childhood. Yeah, and an example of that is I, I used to go to Spurs. I'm Watford now, but Dad took us to Spurs. So you'll never beat Sol Campbell. Uh, was a regular for my brother and I. We went in the late 90s, so we saw Ben Thatcher, the man banned for a yellow card offence, elbowing Pedro uh-huh. Mendes, uh, and Sol Campbell, whom you say was caricatured, but history will declare, yes, he's a bit of an eccentric, he ran for London mayor, briefly. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, Sol Campbell, one of England's top pros. I don't know, I do know exactly what the reason is that he's not as celebrated as Stephen Gerrard, Michael Owen, Wayne Rooney and the rest. And unfortunately, it's skin pigmentation. Um, uh-huh. I, yes, you you do try and avoid any culture war trap, any kind of modern post Equality Act journalism, uh, and instead, with the eight defenders alone, uh, you go for the serial winner Tsinchenko, Ian Hart for the free kicks, Kieran Trippier, whom I forgot was banned for betting, uh, Hooth, Robert Hooth, David Unsworth, 
and Titus Bramble, whom uh, you use Bramble as a kind of metonym for Bantz, Soccer AM Bantz. So I appreciate this paragraph is already long enough, but do you think Bantz is the prime currency of Sky Sports in 2022? Um, maybe this is a bit too much of a reach, but I feel like it's, it's too easy to reach for in just football culture in general. It's embedded itself in such a way that... There's something about the 24-7 news cycle that sort of leans, especially in the football context, to um, what's the most hilarious thing we can say or do? You see with the Phil Joneses of the, uh, and Harry Maguire's and, and all the gurning and all the memes that come off that. And, and, and Bramble's one of the ones that existed kind of before that, but he's still associated, he's synonymous with it in that process. And it just felt insincere. It, it feels distant. It feels... Um, almost, I mean, not almost disrespectful, it is disrespectful, but it's just, it's not a reading of the game, it's a, an almost, oh, I'm, he represents a reason as to why footballers are both put on a pedestal and how quickly they can be taken down, because, oh, if this guy's just a comedy character and he plays in the Premier League, that means I can play, I could have played in the Premier League, even though I'm a nobody, like, I find, I find, I'm a genuinely terrible footballer but if I could see a Premier League footballer that looks like or makes me feel better about the fact that I didn't make it I feel like there's an element of that in that was a well. great point by the way that was absolutely brilliant and I will be quoting it and saying that you Stuart Quigley wrote about that it is yeah it's I I didn't get anywhere but let's laugh at people who did it has just occurred to me um that the midfielders you choose from the post-1992 era are completely different from the midfielders of the 70s and 80s who were the Mavericks. Ashley Young, Jason Puncher, Nicky Barmby, Bukayo Saka, Paul Robbie Savage, Chesh Fabregas, Gunnar Haller of Oldham, Charlie Adam, Matty Holland, Sergi Canos and Patrick Vieira. None of them are silky, skillful midfielders predominantly, apart from perhaps Fabregas and Ruud Gullit, um, who you say is the ignition that lights up the Premier League. Is that what you got as you were talking about all these very functional midfielders? Uh, Jason Punch and a brilliant choice as well. These are not the maverick figures who would be out on the wing jinking and dancing and jiving and cutting to the byline. Hollett functions or serves as a really incredible specific function, both within Chelsea Football Club and within the wider Premier League context, which is that when he comes into Chelsea, it, it's almost... Not like you cannot overstate how big of a deal that was going from um, AC Milan, and I know we had a, a spell alone as well, um, or a spell out rather just before this. But comes into England, and he was already uh, well renowned. He'd had all the medals, all the trophies, all the awards, all the plaudits, and he was coming to Chelsea. And it was a case of like he sort of was so out of place as a footballer in terms of what was going on in this country at the time. And obviously Hoddle and the connections and, and all the sort of joined up things you could do there as well with, with what Hoddle represents within English football. And Hollett basically ends up in a position where he takes over from Glenn Hoddle and brings in a collection of players that really pushed Chelsea on and turned them into what was the pre-Abramovich because um, selective memory makes you think that they did nothing and then Abramovich comes in and then they were the side under Mourinho that everyone remembers them. Whereas there's a little bit before that. There's a little bit of success, a little bit of uh, at least a hint toward that. And um, with Hullet, 
coming in and winning the FA Cup as well for Chelsea, their first trophy for God knows how long at the time, uh, being the first black manager to win at Wembley, the first foreign manager to win at Wembley, the first foreign manager to win the FA Cup, etc. And with what the Premier League then became, there were foreign players that existed, foreign players from outside of the British Isles. Yeah, Gunnar Haller. Yes, yeah, one of the 13 that played in the opening day of 1992-93. But what happened after I used the phrase, you used it a second ago, the ignition, it sort of kicked everything into hyper gear and, and the Premier League's never really looked back since then. Who is the pantomime villain of today? Is it still just Robbie Savage, but he's behind a mic rather than with football boots? Potentially. I, I think part of football as it's gone on has been less about an individual voice within the players that play and more about a collective... Um, Ronaldo and Messi, the whole argument, it has sort of uh, um, distilled and, and almost dissipated as they have like, gone to slightly the end of their careers into individualism. As I grew up, football was about individualism and the, the one player that could make the difference and, and who could score the goals and they would get all the plaudits. And it's become... I'm more of a team game now and I don't know if any one player and also as well this is like media training and the idea that they've grown up in this era so they know the, the trials and trepidations of actually speaking your mind there are one or two people that speak out but not to that degree there are one or two people that try and um, put their heads above what is uh, not necessarily the parapet but just sort of make themselves known for not just their football I don't know if you could get necessarily a pantomime villain from the inside like a savage um, so I think the assessment, potentially with him being just as a, as a pundit, is I thought that's probably as close as you can get, I think. I wonder if you're going to get career pundits. Statman Dave is turning into one of them. People in their 20s who grow up. I want to be a pundit like Gary Neville, who's got a book out later this year. I imagine he's going to have to hurriedly rewrite it, given what's happening in government at the moment. Um, a line about Chesh Fabregas uh, stood out. The numbers matter but they should never be everything. What's your view on expected goals? It's a little bit like poker in the sense that um, there are people out there that view poker as, obviously it's a card game, so it's a game of luck in in terms of which cards are dealt at which particular time. And um, if you play over a period of time, it's skill, it's maths, it's um, being able to assess your opposition and um, act accordingly. Um, an individual XG tells me very little. I need to see it over a course of time. And a lot of people are beholden to individual numbers. And I grew up and I, I'm fascinated by certain numbers and what they can tell me. But within the themselves, I don't think they tell the full picture. I need to see them over the course of time. No, you're right. You need a blend of data and empirical uh, evidence behind what you see. Watford's whole deal is based on unearthing diamonds, polishing them. And now Richarlison, another discovery, that, and they won't get the credit, but the Udinese-Granada-Watford scouting team have given Tottenham, I think, a player who can really do stuff at Spurs. I think Antonio Conte will turn him into a world-class player, not just because Brazil will win the World Cup, it's fixed. Uh, Richarlison is not one of the players. In fact, I don't think you've got any Brazilians. No, you do, you have the goalkeeper. Um... You have uh, a Bosnian in your strike force. You have an Italian, of course, who finishes the book. Did you put Paolo Di Canio at the end on purpose? And last but not least, Paolo. <laughs> um, when I did the 
organisational um, method for the book in terms of which players would go where. Um, I don't know if there's a sufficient word for it, there probably is, but you know how on the dartboard all the numbers are spaced out so that no two numbers are quite close together in terms of their value. Very good. Um, you get like the one next to the 20. I wanted to try and make it so that each chapter, there would, there would be no two chapters together that would consider the same teams and there would be no two chapters together that would consider the same players. And similarly, uh, not really, as far as I could do, given the players I've chosen, I'd try and keep the positions as spread apart as possible. But within that, there's a, there's a lot of um, changes that had to be made. In the first run-through, Decanio ended up last point, sort of default almost. And then as I started writing the chapter, I thought, no, this is this is going to... If, if I can hit this, if I can swing for the fences and hit this, this is the way to end it. That's the bullseye. So does that make Wayne Rooney, who starts off the story, treble 20 double top? I'd say very much potentially, yes, because I think given my own personal history in terms of, oh, I'm a Liverpool fan, what, why, however, what reason would you pick Wayne Rooney first? And the, and the reason why, and, and with all the players in there that are sort of the most obvious choices, the famous choices. I liked really, I wanted to get my, my fingers, I wanted to get stuck in, I wanted to get dig deep onto the, the ones that aren't talked about as so much. With the ones that are, there has to be a reason. And with Wayne Rooney, it's that he's still England's all-time top goal scorer, he's Manchester United's all-time top goal scorer, and yet his place in history is not yet assured, or not in the way it should be. And I, I needed to know, I wanted to have a look. And in the way that my, obviously I have a bias, but I, I, I wanted to see it through those eyes, so, so to speak. And just and the thing that I, I find fascinating watching it back is that because with a certain amount of closure from my own personal perspective, having won the league, I can look back at Wayne Rooney now in a way that I couldn't before. And the, the underappreciation of his actual technical ability is quite spectacular. I'm not watching the Qatar World Cup, but it has just hit me this second. Wayne Rooney's going to be a pundit. He's going to have to be a pundit. I don't know why you wouldn't pick him as a pundit. I think we're going to see a lot of Wayne Rooney, who's just left the Derby job uh, and probably wants a nice, easy summer with the kids uh, and time with Colleen because of what's happened this year. Um, Wayne is the ultimate Premier League footballer, I think, and you've done well to start him off in the Cornerstone Collection, sculpting the Premier League's past, present and future. Um, Adi Akinbayi, unfortunately, is one isn't he? If you're doing it as a dartboard, would you pick Akinbayi as the one? Akinbayi is an interesting one because I think when you sit down and look at the names, there is a, there was potential for Akinbayi and Titus Bramble to be the exact same chapter, but the more I drilled down into Akinbayi, it was a story of numbers and a story of how finance got out of control and not out of control to a point in 2022 where you look at these transfers and you think these numbers mean nothing. It's already happened, it's already gone. And I wanted to know fundamentally if he was as bad as people say. People, and I think as well, like fundamentally, Leicester fans who watched him will be able to tell me, and from what you read, like, yeah, they, they watched him week in and week out. So, you know, they're the ones that ultimately will see it, we experienced it and whatnot. But I find it fascinating that in his first season... Uh, he got as many goals as Emil Heskey, who he just replaced. And I thought, how? I wondered actually, because there's a lot of these players, especially the ones that are older, that a lot of them wouldn't necessarily would have done very worse things, or, or would have not reacted well in the social media era. And I do wonder whether the because you get the take, and then you get the take against the take now. Yes. And I wonder whether Akiboy now might have been better off 
I wonder, yes, I wonder too, because it was an enormous sum that Leicester paid. And he was, I remember Nick Hancock, uh, who's had to apologise for having a go at other people, having a go at Adi the Akin Bayi, because he was, he was a punchline, you, you quite rightly say. There are two African forwards, the Cote d'Ivoire striker Wilfred Bonny and the Nigerian starlet Nwankwo Kanu, whose debut, his Arsenal debut, was the FA Cup game. I didn't know that. Yeah, it, this is the, some of the stuff that I loved about digging into teams that I don't support the stories, the players, and, and the, the, the kind of... And also as well, like just him being unveiled in front of a hotel wearing yeah. like a shirt and jeans and holding a shirt. And, and when you think of that, you immediately think of, oh, that's certainly a thing that's changed in terms of how players are unveiled into the world now. And when they move clubs, this is Wenger, this is Arsenal. And, and you think to yourself, oh, they're very modern. They were very ahead of their time. But it was almost the reverse in that regard. And, and as you say, his debut in that FA Cup game where he chases the ball down off a, what should we say, a gentleman's agreement yep. that you should just let them play it back. He then crosses the ball, Arsenal score. And then again, on top of that, Wenger being sort of, Offering them the replay, which would almost definitely never happen again. Fascinating chapter. I loved reading about Noan Kokanu, who did well. Was it the Olympics? The 1992 yes. Olympics? 96. 96 Olympics, and then he had heart trouble. Yes. Um, and yes, Noan Kokanu, who I, I think I was, I can't remember for sure, but I think I was at that Portsmouth game when they won the FA Cup. But I went to a lot of cup matches because uh, I live quite near Wembley. I'm in Watford, so Wembley Stadium was... It almost became boring, which I know it shouldn't. Um, and one year I thought, I'm never going to watch football again at Wembley, because it was Watford Palace, and the Palace fans were a nightmare. Uh, but I did go to Watford play the semi-final against Wolves. Gomez played in that game. Um, so it was nice to nice to see Herelia there and Ashley Young. One thing that I learned from this book, or that it reminded me, about the Premier League is that I'm less interested in how much Erling Haaland is going to score next year and how the story is definitely going to be, oh, don't step on Harry Kane, we need him for Qatar. <laughs> That's not the story. Ipswich under George Burley, Charlton with a midfield of Scotty Parker and Matty Holland, Wimbledon in the 1990s, Bolton under Sam Allardyce. I think your next book, not that I'm going to tell you, but it should be called Unfashionable. Because what I learned from this book is that I actually like the Wimbledon of the 90s, the Charlton that Alan Kerbishley put together, um, the Ipswich team that Darren Bent played for, the Charlton team Darren Bent played for. Darren Bent scored over 100 league goals. Uh, and his career, you say, is linked to his clubs. When he was at Spurs, my missus could have scored that. That's a, 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 an anthology-worthy chapter, which is about as high a praise as I can get. Did you get more of a... Um, feeling for these unfashionable clubs? I think once you inhale the Premier League in the way it's presented as is, you get a steady diet of nothing but top six. And looking at those clubs that... Charlton are are a good example of this. In terms of Charlton under Alan Kirbyshley are as close to upper mid-table perfection as I can get. They were solid, they had good players. On their day, quote-unquote, the, the cliches, they, they are so rife. And and Matt Holland is just the epitome of a player that's going to 
like he racks up. I think it's a hundred appearances for three different clubs. He captains three different clubs. Fifty nine. Yeah, Fifty nine in that first season. Outside of those clubs, no one's ever going to pay attention, and that's the thing. It, it was the clubs themselves that aren't fashionable, as you say, but it was also the players that sort of kicked those clubs up. And, and, and I don't I wouldn't go so far as to say they made them relevant because I think it, obviously it's a team game. You can't do it with just one player, but. They are indelibly linked. If I was a Charlton fan, I'd never start talking about Matt Holland. And, and that's quite... And, and also, also Ipswich. And, and Ipswich in the sense of like the shooting star that was. Obviously, you've got a very early period of time where they were in the Premier League beforehand. But that whole run of three playoff final playoff defeats, they finally get to the Premier League. They crack it in a way that, like... I know Nottingham Forest and Newcastle have finished high, but it was unbelievable at the time. And then the, the following season, it all falls apart. It's, it's almost Shakespearean. And mm. that it was those kind of chapters and those kind of stories that I definitely looked more towards... Um, and, and even the sort of more for, um, relevant and, and opportune ones like the Rooney's, the Fabregas's of the world, I, I wanted to look at them through a lens that hadn't necessarily been looked. The, the Fabregas one is a very simple one, but it's, it's brilliant. His career is divided into two halves. One half where he's amazing and gets plaudits left, right and centre, and he's absolutely adored. He's Arsenal through and through, and he's amazing, but doesn't win a lot. When it goes to Chelsea, wins everything, and is nowhere near the same. He's blamed for one of the people that, I can't remember which manager, he was called a rat by the Chelsea fans. It's not quite the greedy Judas that Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank was called, which um, pulled, pulled me up about that, because I thought he was beloved. But yes, £15 million, Hasselbank, who was the joint transfer fee. You, you use some great lines in this book, and it's, I'm not going to spoil too many, but football is an orchestra of 22 conducted by chaos. If you've nicked that from someone, you've done a very good job of covering it. Because that is a, that's a kind of, it makes me think of Simon Barnes, Henry Winter, Hugh McElvany, Brian Glanville, Barney Ronnie, Johnny Lou, even John McKenzie, who's now at TIFO Football. I just wanted to ask you, who influenced your style? It's something that I've kind of, I, I think there might be specific people that I've read in there over the course of years, but generally speaking, it's something that I've developed over the course of time. I've been writing since I was five years old and, and the two genuinely biggest passions in my life are football and writing. And um, uh, in terms of a, a style, I, I like to make, if it weren't for the fact that you have the chapter headers as the player themselves, I would like to take the reader on a journey where you have no idea who that player is until I get to the end of the first paragraph. That was, no, that was great. And uh, whenever... Was it Giles Corrin? Someone said of Giles Corrin, I think it was his editor, look, write what you want, but as long as you start talking about the food in about the fifth paragraph, great. Uh, so uh, maybe Giles Corrin is the antecedent for your style. But it was, it was great because... No, I would hope not. I would hope uh, not. No, I like it. I think he's great. I liked his dad. Um, the, the first 500 words of every chapter is scene setting. Uh, and so it's like you're painting in a picture. It's like a Lowry painting. God, that's obnoxious of me to say. Yeah. Take that in the spirit it was intended. Um, the Cornerstone Collection is the book. You're sculpting. Why sculpting and not painting? Because of the word cornerstone. It was a word that got embedded in my head. And it was only like alliteration. I just needed a word that summed up, like, you've got a collection of these players. And the cornerstone part of it, of like, these are the players that... Not necessarily the players themselves, but their stories, what they represent, who they were in terms of like just being the first person to do this, being a part of a group that were um, the first to 
Nigel Martin, first goalkeeper to break, not just the goalkeeper record once but twice. And and then when you've got that as an image of just sort of these are the building blocks, it was it then, it then grew from that. If for anyone I've ever had a drunken conversation with, look, if this what is what you're like when you're drunk, I wonder how you're right when you're sober. Not to say that you, <laughs> you know what I mean, because it's 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 a very sober and sobering. Again, that's a horrible phrase. Book. The 45th team we talk about is Brentford. Brentford are an anomaly because you say football is a cutthroat game with heartless people making ruthless decisions. Maybe the Borkhausen, Dijkhausen management was a bit cutthroat, but Brentford have got it right every step for the last 10 years. And then to sort of pivot that on to another chapter, and, and, and this is the, the kind of beauty of, and also bittersweetness of football in the sense that they've got it right now in this book. But Swansea got it right for 10 years as well. And all it took was one or two dominoes to fall there. And, and the, the beautiful thing about this is that in terms of publishing and trying to get the book um, to, to deadline, and, and I, I paid so much more attention to Brentford at the end of last season than anyone. And there were, there were a couple of moments where I thought, oh, they might go here. And I really hope they don't because I'm not going to be able to write definitively how this story ends. But it became more and more apparent that it wasn't about how the story ended. And, and Sergio Canos himself might not necessarily be a Brentford starter or someone that's going to take them forward over the next few years. And, and they might, you know, they might like to move on because he was on and off the bench during this season. But one thing he is, he's an indelible point in their history because I, I don't want to be that guy that goes, oh, it only matters if you're the first ever scorer in the Premier League. But it was a true event for them and something these Brentford fans will remember for the rest of their lives. And he's the guy that got that goal against Arsenal. And especially after COVID and their stadium move, what a release of emotion that was. Yeah, I wish I was there. Then it was against Arsenal. I hope to get to the community stadium this year uh, to see Brentford. I've got an open invitation from Greville Waterman uh, and I will hopefully take him the Cornerstone Collection, sculpting the Premier League's past, present and future out in hardback. Is there a second book being written? There is one there and... I will just say that.